In business, you rarely hear the expression for life. You make a purchase for a product, for a service, and, and there's, a, there's a time frame there. Well, that's not the case with Awaken 180 weight loss. Allow me to explain. You know, a year ago, I started with Awaken 180 weight loss and had incredible success losing weight. But you can lose all the weight in the world and not keep it off. And what good is it? That's why I have support for life from Awaken 180. Yeah. I mean, I go back for check-ins and make sure everything's going smoothly. But if I ever had a problem, the counselors are there to get me back on track. Why don't you do what I did and call for a consultation? 844-346-1800. 844-346-1800. Or go to awaken180weightloss.com. Hello, and welcome to Season 2 of Between the Lines. On this podcast, you will hear about and from lesser-known Canadian authors and writers who, for whatever reason, have remained under the radar of traditional publishers and publishing houses. You will also hear from editors, literary agents, and publishers in the hopes of giving us all a better understanding of how it all works together. If it has something to do with writing or the writing process, you are going to hear a discussion about it here. I'm your host, Randy Lacey. I'm encouraging you to grab your bevy of choice, get comfy, and get ready to go between the lines. People come into writing in several different ways. For some, it was a teacher at school handing out a writing assignment, while for others, it may have been by reading and wondering if they might be able to write. Every writer has started their writing journey on a different path. Each writer's journey will be different, yet similar. But one thing all writers have in common is a different destination. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Between the Lines. On the last episode, I was speaking with Neil Aiken. Though he has worn many hats in and around the writing industry, I asked him if we could talk about all things editing. This episode is the continuation of that conversation. For context, it starts a little before the end of the previous episode. There is plenty of useful information for you to glean from. Enjoy. And so there are ways to get a hold of an editor without necessarily having to expend a lot of money. But I do think that seeking outside perspectives on the work, especially from people who you're not related to, um, so they don't feel obligated to say something nice, yeah. right, can be helpful. So pay for an editor if you feel like you've exhausted your other options or you're no longer getting feedback that helps you move the manuscript to the next level. Mm-hmm. If you're still feeling like, I feel I'm stuck or I feel like this is like 80% there, but I can't figure out how to get the next 20% done, then talk to an editor. If you feel like this is like 100% done, but I've been sending it out and I still have got no traction, no one is interested in looking at this, then maybe it's time to talk to an editor to see if you can get someone's professional opinion about maybe how marketable the idea is, or if the way that you're presenting it in terms of your cover letters and accompanying materials is doing the work you think it's doing, or if you're inadvertently sabotaging yourself when you do that. No, that's uh, that's really. You're only six hours from me, so you might see me soon. 
most writers are not independently wealthy and can't afford all aspects of the writing process. Hiring an editor is typically not so cheap of an investment. What, and you probably already just answered part of this, but what can you suggest to any and all writers seeking to keep the cost to a minimum? So I would say, and you know, as I noted, look for community resources that are already available and free. So like writer in residence programs, writing mentorship programs. So like, uh, you know, here in Saskatchewan, the Saskatchewan Writers Guild offers a, uh, a writing, creative writing mentorship program where they pair up, pair up a, a, a more established writer with someone who is a quote unquote emerging writer. And basically for 10 weeks, you you meet it doesn't cost you as the as the writer any any additional funds the uh the writer like the the provincial writers guild the saskatchewan writers guild actually pays us you know a, a small amount of money it's not great we can't retire on it but it's a little bit of money to uh to compensate us each month for for helping out and it's good. It's it's a good experience. And I enjoy volunteering some of my time. I actually volunteer in another organization called AWP, the Association of Writers and Writing Programs. It's, a, it's very large in the States. It's a, it's a huge national organization that covers all writing, university writing programs, publishers, and writers, and writing-related industry stuff. They also sponsor a writer to writer program, which is again, a mentorship It is also 10 weeks long, but that one's purely volunteer. So I get paid nothing for that one, <laughs> but I enjoy it. I've done it for like three or four years now, I guess for four or five years now. And you'll find that there are opportunities to take advantage of, of like those type of mentorships. And then again, I think look at your community Sometimes community colleges and, and universities have extension courses that you could take a creative writing class. And if the creative writing class happens to match the type of material you need feedback on, you might have opportunities to workshop that within those classes. And it will probably cost you less than getting, well, not probably, it will definitely cost you less than enrolling in a graduate program for creative writing to take the occasional class or to sign up for the occasional workshop that's being offered somewhere else. And you will also find people offering private classes and workshops to, to offer that type of feedback, which in a group setting will be cheaper than a one-on-one -on -one editor relationship. Okay. If that makes sense. Oh, and the last thing I would say, and this is a critical one, do not overlook the possibility of getting grant funding to underwrite your, your, your seeking out an editor on a project. A lot of provincial and federal grants are available for the arts, and one of the categories that they will cover is any professional assistance that you might need to bring your project to completion. And professional assistance includes hiring an editor. Or cover designer or... Any right. Aspect. Yeah. Yeah. And if you if if your your goal is to self publish, then there may be more things that you can argue fit under that category. And as long as you read the fine print, and make certain that you're within the guidelines, it should be fine. Yeah. So that's a good point about the grants. Uh, I'm because of my my vision impairment, uh, I'm on uh, disability. So there's not a lot of work for somebody like me. And I was just recently investigating the possibility of grants for some of, you know, my books and things that I'd like to do. 
And I came across uh, this, this grant for, for writers and whatever. And so I contacted my um, disability worker and I said, listen, I know that, you know, after a certain amount of money that you deduct dollar for dollar, but are grants considered income? And because I, I automatically thought I was disqualified from it, right? And my worker actually said, you know what? I don't know because I've never been asked this question. So as we were on the phone, she was researching. And so if any of you people are out there who are, have a disability or whatever and are on a disability pension or what have you, it, investigate this because it turns out that grants are exempt. So I could yep. get a grant up to $15,000 or whatever they offer maximum, and it doesn't count against what I get for disability. Yeah. So that's a yep. very good point. And there's, uh, and I will say, having served on on grant judging panels both here in Canada and the United States, but especially in Canada, Canadians do not take advantage of their art grants programs as much as they should. That some years there's just not very many applicants, and when there's a low pool of applicants, there's a low pool of money available. The higher the number of applicants, the greater the potential pool is available for for people so here's a probably a common misconception from people like me then with regards to you know the the Canada Council for the Arts or any of these places that give out grant money is that uh, I think they're looking for a certain type of person to give this money to or you know they won the CBC contest so they're going to get a grant or would you say that's accurate or is that just a, a total misconception? I think people overlook the fact that most grants are divided into two different categories. You can be eligible as an emerging writer or artist versus an established writer or art, artist. Mm-hmm. And so like an established writer or artist is someone that has, you know, one to two books or maybe more books already. There's someone who has numerous publications and magazines or a number of different performances across country, or their work is being showcased in a lot of different places, right? So that's who we usually think of as applying for grants. But there's another category for emerging artists and and writers. And that includes people who might be at an earlier, much earlier stage where they haven't finished the first project. They're working on that first project, or they're working on, on getting something into a more professional shape. They've done some preliminary work and these smaller type of publishing projects, but now they want to like prepare something for a full length manuscript, or they want to, they want to do something that really marks a transition from the emerging state into someone that is closer to being in the established state. Right. Right. So, so there's an opportunity there. And for both categories, I believe you have to have, you have to, the key thing is to find letter writers, people who can write a letter of recommendation and this is most important, I think, with the emerging side, is because you're an unknown at this stage for the grant panel. So they need to see evidence from people who are in the community, in the artist community, who can speak to your ability, like one, the quality of the work that you've been doing so far, two, the importance of what you've been doing, three, the likelihood that you will actually deliver on a project if you're given grant money. And if those things are addressed and they feel confident about those things and your plan, your proposed plan for what you're going to do with the money makes sense, then it's, um, 
then it's pretty clear cut as long as the quality of your writing sample is sufficient and you know what you're doing is is uh within the parameters of what they can fund they'll try to find a way to support you and so i i think that's that's really key there's a lot of times People make mistakes in their grant applications. And I think one of the things they, one of the biggest mistakes is they forget or they don't know that they can actually call and talk to the people in charge of the grant administrators. That office has people available to help walk you through how to apply for the grant. And they can answer your questions in advance. And they will hold workshops and virtual workshops even sometimes to help you get through that process well, so that I didn't know. <laughs> yeah. So you don't have to like blind, you know, blunder through on your own, trying to figure out how to do it. You can, you can do it with the assistance of other people who have, who understand the whole system are sympathetic. They want you to succeed. You know, they do want you to succeed. So they're going to try to support you as best as possible. And they'll answer your questions. And as it stands, usually what happens is whatever the number of people that apply, typically it's around 50 to 60% of them have a decent chance in Canada, at least, I think it's 50 to 60% have a decent chance of getting some, if not all of their funding requests. Oh, and the other thing that I should note for, for these grants, if the only thing you're asking for is uh, subsistence or living expenses, you don't actually have to even document what you spent that money on. It's just understood you're spending it on living expenses or artist fees, whatever they want to call it. It's it's only when you call it other expenses like, oh, I need to purchase additional materials. Like I had uh, in my material section, I said I wanted a $500 materials budget for buying additional books. Because why not? <laughs> $500 to buy a lot of books? Yeah. I like collecting books I, I, and the books would be pertinent to the project I was working on. Well, and course. so I had a, 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 I would have to show the receipts for what I purchased. Right. But other than that, you know, that was the only extra thing I asked for. I didn't, I didn't have a component that required me to travel to a specific location or to stay for X number of days in another, you know, country because I was doing something about a dialogue between these two countries or something like that. I think some of those yeah. grants cover, uh, you know, like book tours or or things like that as well. But one thing that they don't cover, at least the ones that I've been researching, they don't like, <clears throat> I've got an old computer. You can't buy a new computer with any grant money that I'm aware of. That uh, yeah. Primary yeah, there's, or... yeah th- that, that becomes... You can't buy that with the grant money in most cases, but that investment in technology, if your primary occupation is that of a writer or an artist, is a tax write-off. Oh, I think think in in the U.S. it's a tax write-off. In Canada, I'm pretty certain it also counts as a tax write-off because you're investing in tools that you need to do your job as a writer. So then office space and, and internet. Yeah. And, yeah. Okay. But these are the things that you would talk to like a, a professional accountant with to verify like, okay, am I staying within what, you know, Canada revenue considers like a legitimate use right. of that money as a, as a write-off. And if you do it, you could do it. Like I believe what it is, is in the States it works this way. You might have that as a deduction one year and then 
you know, you're not really expected to replace your computer for like, you should be replacing your computer <laughs> next year. And the next year after that, it's like, the, they will keep track of stuff like that. It's like, it seems like for, for a writer, they're burning through their computers left and right. I wonder what's going on there. <laughs> I'm just filling all the space. <laughs> um, you could delete something. <laughs> like, <laughs> you, uh, you had mentioned the, the two different categories, the emerging artists and the established artists. Um, with regards to that, though, and sticking within the, the print and, and, and authors and writers and stuff like that, uh, is that for traditionally published only or... Does that include, you know, those who have self-published? Because I've got nine books that I've self-published. Right. I think that depends on the province. I think some provinces have expanded the definition of emerging or expanded the definition of established to include certain types of self-published authors. So some self-published authors produce a number of high-quality, professional-grade books, right? They've been doing it professionally for the last little while uh, or for a long time. And there are definitely people in genre, genre writers who have found that they, they're more successful writing and publishing for an ebook market and for a uh, print on demand market through Amazon, for instance, right. than going through a traditional publisher. They like having a larger profit margin. They like having more control over things. And uh, they've, they're meeting some measure of success already. I have a good friend of mine who's a poet. He's also a fantasy writer, and he writes fantasy novels. And he's fairly successful as a fantasy novelist publishing through this, this route. Um, he doesn't have a – he's not publishing through the traditional major publishing houses. And yet he's still doing reasonably okay. You know? mm-hmm. Yeah, so I would say, yeah, there's a, definitely – I know at the – on the on the level of the national organizations like Writers Union of Canada, they're also looking at at softening up some of those uh, restrictions so that self-published authors who uh, you know who it's clear they're not simply you know kind of mass producing fairly junky products for the sake of meeting the criteria, yeah. right? But are actually legitimately creating like okay, this is this is a this is a book of fiction or this is a book of poetry that's thoughtfully put together, <laughs> but it's, it's a tricky thing. A lot of these organizations. So I think membership in a national organization can also, I, I don't, I won't say for certain, but it helps legitimize your effort to apply for some of these grants because they see that you're recognized as being a member of the community already. Right. And a lot of, and again, if you're on a budget, a lot of these national or, or regional organizations for writers will have accommodations for people on tighter budgets and say, you know, okay, do you meet certain criteria? You know, we can accommodate, especially during the pandemic. It's been fairly flexible. Okay. In a lot of cases. So yeah, don't let that be a, a barrier without asking, you know, whether or not there can be some accommodation or flexibility with that. I think, I, this whole interview has been fantastic, but this last little segment right here, I think a lot of people are going to go, you, you've opened their eyes up. I think my eyes have been open. I still don't see anything because I'm blind, but you, you get what I'm saying. This has been like monumental in my mind about the directions of things like that are at my fingertips now. Uh, so mm-hmm. thank you for that. Next question. When submitting a manuscript to an editor, 
uh, and you've answered kind of uh, this, but what should accompany the manuscript? Uh, cover letter, uh, author's interpretation of expectations, et cetera. Yeah, I, I would say, so if you're submitting uh, a manuscript for an editor's assistance to get it done, right? That That's what you're talking about? Yeah. Versus submitting to an agent or a publisher. Yes. Um, if you're submitting to, you're sending something with the, you know, after you've already kind of broached the idea of like hiring this person and they say like, sure, okay, we've signed some contracts. Let's look over the manuscript. Send them the manuscript, obviously. You don't need a formal cover letter unless unless part of your goal is to get feedback as well about the accompanying materials. If your goal is to send it to an agent, you, they might say, well, would you also be willing to look at my my accompanying materials, my cover letter, my plot summary or, or uh, pitch or whatever it is that you've got? you know, to describe the the novel or the book. Yeah, so so it's like in terms of book covers, uh, editors rarely comment on book covers because mm-hmm. it's usually left to the publisher or the self-publisher to decide how they want to do that type of presentation. This this idea of like the, the interpretation of expectations, I think I would probably simplify that and simply say, like, I hope that when someone sends me something, I, I encourage them strongly to send me a list of questions what specific questions do you have that you hope that I can answer about your manuscript? And what are your specific, like, what do you see as the biggest challenges or sticking points or problems that are currently happening? Where do you feel your anxiety about this manuscript? And and so I can address those things. So if you're like saying, I'm already pretty confident about my ability to do these to X, Y, and Z, then I know, unless I discovered that you're wrong, but <laughs> but for the most part, I'm like, I'm trusting that you have a good sense of your ability to do something. I'm not going to spend a lot of time focused on those type of things because you seem fairly happy with what what's there, right? Yeah. If I see an opportunity to go to the next level, then I might push you a little further, but I'm going to trust you on that one. But if you say like, yeah, I'm really concerned about the dialogue. I feel like I've never been good at doing character dialogue and some particular scenes, and you might identify these particular chapters. I feel especially worried about the dialogue sounding flat, or this is a period piece. It's written about the 19th century. And I feel like my voices for the characters are all wrong. They just feel like they're drawn out of like 1950s New Jersey instead. It's like, maybe I've been watching too much boardwalk. I don't know. Uh, (laughs) Good show. (laughs) That's... (laughs) <laughs> so, so I mean, like stuff like that is like, oh, I don't know. Or you might say, like, I have written a story that involves, you know, indigenous characters or indigenous themes, but I myself am not an indigenous person. I am concerned about how representations working within this novel. Am I, am I handling the material and the characters and the people in a respectful fashion, or have I done something that? might be offensive and get me in trouble when I try to send this out for publishing. Mm. And like, can you help me identify what to do next? And in some cases, it may be you hire someone who's uh, called a sensitivity reader, who is a person who specializes in that type of reading to look closely to say like, yeah, these things are like within sort of parameters. And these things are like, 
no, that's just repeating a standard stereotype that we all know is wrong mm-hmm. and is definitely going to get you called out. Here are some things you could do to improve your representation in these areas, right? Right. And, so a sensitivity reader is basically to save you a lot of money and a lot of embarrassment down the line if you've done something that you probably should have done. So uh, in my in my memoir that I had mentioned earlier, there is a, mm-hmm. a section within and, and I've let a lot of just, you know, friends and people online read certain sections and stuff. But there's a section that deals with uh, hitchhiking across the country being picked up by a van of. Uh, and again, this is going into the 80s, right? But uh, right. A, a van of um, natives uh, stopped to pick me up. And at the time, that 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 culture was not looked at in a positive light. And every every you know whatever. But in my manuscript, I said, you know, my first thought was, I'm dead. Mm-hmm. And that's just the way that that time. That's the way the thoughts went, right? But everybody says, no, you can't say that. You can't do that. I'm going, but that's the 80s. And I'm trying to reflect the 80s. I can't be politically correct because the 80s were not politically correct. So would an editor say, tell me that or? Well, the editor would say, like, is this, like, part of that is figuring out, like, what point of time is the story being told from? Right. And where where is that that assessment? Is that coming out of the voice from the moment in the 80s, or is that voice that, that's making that assessment coming from the contemporary moment, the moment that we're reading the novel in, right? Does that right. make sense? So, like, if you're the present-day author and you are putting your assessment of that situation and it's still colored by that sense of, like, of like oh, I'm dead. I thought, it, you know, it's different to say back then, I thought it was dead, right? Or like in that moment, I thought it was dead. Today, I would realize what a ridiculous thing that was, right? Well, absolutely. Right. And so, and you may not have to be so heavy handed as to do it quite like that, but there, it's just figuring out like, how do you communicate clearly that this is a product of the time period and not necessarily, um, you know, a continuation of that idea into the present moment, right. you know? And I think where, where it gets tricky, right, is, is when you're writing memoir because you're implicating yourself, right? You basically say, oh, yeah, I had these uh, really problematic attitudes and, and ideas back then. And it's like, and I don't think it's just about race, right? I think people have that same thing when they're right about the 70s, the 60s and 70s and gender dynamics, right? Yeah. A lot of gender beliefs are just horribly, like, wrong now we look back and we think about how in the world how in the world did we hold on to some of these ideas for so long it was just like it's just like that's just kind of cringy very very cringy to look back on those yeah. things music videos from the 80s there are like moments where you like go i can't believe that ever flew you know that's like exactly. that, that shouldn't have happened right lyrics i think we're we every christmas we have a moment of cringe when we hear the lyrics for um baby it's cold outside and you like listen to it closely and you realize he's putting something in her drink he's he's, he's, he's trying to get her drunk so she could stay and then he's going to take advantage of her that's not really a, a very modern you know message we want sent out right no no absolutely later like that that whole story was uh it's you know like i'm going to vancouver well you need to come with us and like again i'm dead 
And well, where do I need to be? And they said, well, you need to come to our powwow. And it's like, you know, the, the thought worsened, right? Just because of my experiences at that time with that group of people. And, but, and I said, listen, you know, I know, I, I know that white people aren't allowed to go to your, your, your ceremonies or only by invitation, but it turns out that it, it, it ended up being a good thing, but mm-hmm. the, the, the whole, the whole scene, I mean, it, it could have come off as I was being racist, but I mean, if you read the rest of the manuscript, there's nothing racist about me. The, well, and or, I think that I, I think what you point out is also the key is that the scene doesn't end there. Yeah. But it continues on and it, it's revealed how incorrect your assumptions were. Absolutely. Absolutely. Right. And and that that's sort of the way in which you redeem a moment like that. If you leave it as sort of I'm including this moment where there was something that I thought that was racist, and then I'm not explaining why I included that moment. <laughs> that's more problematic like whereas it's like i had this this was during a time period when i held beliefs and i thought about people in a particular way and i was frequently wrong i was frequently wrong and that's the pattern it's like things i thought i understood i was wrong about right and that's kind of the underlying message and it's kind of a coming of age narrative right in that respect it's like we're, we're getting wiser as we get older and we realize that we were we've been quick to judge on a lot of things that turn out not to be the way that they actually are. Yeah. yeah. Um, so Great I think like a memoir, a memoir is frequently about that. It's like, we're, it's, it's a, an exploration of, of our growth and wisdom and insight. We're like becoming better human beings, hopefully by the end, or maybe it's a retrospective about all the bad choices we've made. That's also a type of memoir. Probably going to be your favorite question to answer if you could give any advice to new writers or authors with regards to an editor uh, what would you tell them be clear about your expectations be willing to work within their limitations so you might say i expect you know uh, a 30 page letter detailing everything that i need to fix in this novel and they might say no, realistically, I can get you like a two to four page letter. 30 pages is way, way beyond what anyone's going to be able to deliver to you. And so sometimes we come in with a little bit of naivete. We're not always certain about what we can ask for, right? So be willing to negotiate a little bit about that and like recognize that there may be limitations there. Mm -hmm. And I think the other bit of advice is to be patient because editors have lives as well and sometimes there are unexpected things that come up that delay them from getting things done exactly when they say they will try their hardest to meet their deadlines and if if something comes up you know they try i always try to be upfront with people and say like look there's been a family emergency and i'm not going to be available during this this two-week period of time because i have to travel to this other place right it's like i'll do my best to get the reading in but i i don't think i'll have time to actually write the notes until i get back as long um, as there's some level of communication i don't see but anything. but but keep the, keep the lines of communication open and and be willing to be a little bit patient if something some weird emergency comes up if it seems like they're constantly putting you off then yeah then that's an issue if they keep like delaying 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 then there's that the other the other bit of advice i would give is like explore the options in terms of payment don't be afraid to say like is it possible to pay in installments 
right? If you're like saying, it seems like an awful lot of money and they might say, well, how about if you pay like in two or three installments and you put something down initially because they, they need to be able to pay their bills too. Absolutely. <laughs> but but uh, a lot of times we're willing to be flexible. I've, I've had some clients that are on very tight budgets that will hire me and they will pay me over four, four installments. And I have other people that will say like, I really want to work with you. I can't really do it for your full rate. And I will say, well, I have a limited number of like discounted rates I can offer, but I'm willing to offer you this much. And so I can reduce it, you know, in that way. Two more questions. Uh, this question stems from somebody interviewed me yesterday for my podcast. So this kind of uh, was as a, a result from that one, but have you ever read a book and thought to yourself, you might have edit it a little differently or is that even a, a, a possible is it even possible to consider um it's a it's a tricky question because uh <laughs> don't want to step on too many toes right well no like uh, so the, the, the but question. but I, I i do think like sometimes you know i read something and i think like um okay i will admit there are sometimes i've read things where i think this person needed to have a more aggressive editor intervene earlier right uh for fantasy novels i'm gonna name names but uh uh, it's it's patrick rothfuss and i love his first novel name at the wind and his second novel i think i can't remember doors of stone or something like that but the second novel which is the middle novel and what is supposed to be a three-part series the second novel has a middle section which to me at least as a reader and as an editor i feel wanders too long it dwells too much on a particular tangent and it just takes too long to get back to the main story. And because of that, he throws off the the pacing and the timing of his efforts to tell this character's life story over three, it's set up to be three days of storytelling, which matches roughly three books, right? But the problem is having spent too long in the second book to cover a sh- too short of a span of time, now he's made the third book nearly impossible to write because it has to cover too much time. Right. So then he's left with this, this really difficult decision. Does he write a fourth book, or, which breaks the three-book model that he set up at the beginning? Or does he race through things in the third book, leaving everyone unsatisfied? Ooh. <laughs> and I would say, like, now the problem is because someone didn't intervene in the second book and tell him, you've got a pacing problem because of the expectation you set up in the first book, you're not going to be able to nail it in the last book. Mm-hmm. And because no one said that to him, he's now got this impossible problem. He can't finish the last book. That's like painting yourself into a corner. He's painted himself in a corner. So there are moments like that where I'd say that's a type of developmental editing that I wish you know, someone had stepped in and told them it's like, you've got to address this issue before it goes to print. Otherwise you're going to be in trouble for the last book. So I I would say there's that there there's other times when I read, I read like a a poetry collection. I think like, I enjoy these poems. I feel like there could have been a better, more interesting arrangement Mm -hmm. of these pieces. Or I feel like this is all great, but this one piece feels extraneous. It feels like it was left in there because someone feels it's their favorite poem, even though it has nothing to do with the rest of the book. <laughs> that would be me. 
Yeah. And I, I, I've been really like, it was one of the hardest things to do is to take the, the poem that had won a prize. I had a poem that won like, won me $300, right? It's like, that's a lot of money, right? For poetry, right? And so it's like, it won me a lot of money. And at the end of the day, it was the one, one of the pieces that had to get cut from the book because it ended up being redundant. <laughs> and I was like, I mean, that's hard. Yeah, I love that's... the book, but it's redundant. It just, it doesn't really need to be in the collection. And so it, it got dropped from the first book. And you know what? No one notices that it's missing. I'm the only one that was aware that it was there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> So as I was saying, that question that I just asked you stemmed from... The last question, Neil, is what's next for Neil? That's a great question. I, I have so many projects that I've started that I need to finish. <laughs> <laughs> what, what's next? Uh, this year, I am working on a libretto for a full-length opera. Ooh. And I've written with this this particular composer I've worked with in the past and a number of other projects. And we did a, a short opera for L.A. Opera back in 2020 or 2021. I can't remember. It was may have debuted in spring of 2021. We wrote it in 2020. And it was like a partnership between us, L.A. Opera and uh, local high schools in Los Angeles. It was a uh, it was a lot of fun, and then it led us to like being invited to do this other opera for a different organization, different festival. So that's not expected to debut until 2025. So that's oh, wow. way off in the distance. Yeah, and uh, there's a lot of stuff that's up in the air. I'm hoping it's still going ahead. We find out more this month, but uh, yeah. So that's probably the next big project. But in addition to that, I have a number of fiction projects that I've started but not finished. And lately, I've been writing uh, a bunch of these weird kind of micro fictions that feature a particular character who keeps showing up over and over again in my in my I've been running sort of these workshops, uh, these spark or generative writing workshops and responding to my own prompts and i have found myself returning to this character over and over again and people like these little microfiction things so they may either stitch themselves into a larger short story or maybe into a full uh, set of short stories for a collection so i think that might be on the horizon too i have a um i have a third collection of poetry that has been through many different iterations and I keep like throwing things out of it and not being happy with it. And so I'm not certain what its current stage is. It's been through like five or six different ideas so far, but I think, I think this year I might finally get back into it and, and try something new with, with what I've, the, the parts that I'm happy with, I think will stay there are other parts that I think I might change into a fourth manuscript and, okay. and just separate them out because mm -hmm. I think that they're not working together. And then I also have on the back burner a uh, what I call an alt historical paranormal mystery novel. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds which intriguing. Is set <laughs> Which is set in the, the 19th century and revolves around computer pioneer Charles Babbage and imagines him as a detective figure instead. You know, using, you know, imagining a, a, a moment in the 19th century where he succeeds in building the, uh, the first computer, but it's a state secret and Scotland Yard controls it and they use it to solve serial crimes. 
I was so. just going to say, didn't I see that on Star Trek: The Next Generation? But <laughs> yes and no, no. Yes so there's the, there, there's there's a lot of other features to it, and there are, there are vampires and there are other things going on in the city. So oh my, it's it's <laughs> I, I I I love the idea. I've written parts of it. I keep dragging my feet on finishing the project, but I, I know it needs to get done. And every so often someone will ask me, well, how's that, how's that story coming along? How's that novel coming along? And I say like, well, I did more research for it. And I, I, I have pretty much a map for the rest of it. I just need to buckle down and write the scenes. Um, as an editor, here's the other funny thing. The irony is that editors often are terrible at following their own advice. You know, we are really good at helping other people see what they need to do with their manuscripts and bring those things to completion. We can offer all sorts of great insights. And then when it comes down to it, we're sometimes terrible and we fail to hear our own advice and do it. Like I get panicked about working on a novel because I'm a poet. Why? Even though I know the advice I would give myself is don't think of it as a novel. Think of it as a collection of scenes and conversations. Yeah. Write one scene at a time. Write one conversation at the time. Worry about how to put the whole thing together as a novel after you have a draft done. Yeah. But don't worry about it now. One scene, one conversation. Just easy move forward. Easy it's to easy say. to say. <laughs> it's easy to say. And it's like, it sounds great when I tell it to other people. And then I also feel the same anxiety as everyone else when they look at that. It's like, but what scene, what scene goes next? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Anything else? Or I think, it, yeah, I just like uh belief, belief in your, your work. I mean, I, I think that's the other advice I would give is just, <clears throat> Uh, believe in your work. I, I have to tell myself that I need to keep believing in what I'm doing. That's worth worth working on these projects. Uh, sometimes you feel like you're writing in a vacuum. You feel like there's no one else out there reading your work. And, uh, and then once in a blue moon, you'll just get an email out of nowhere or someone will send you a message on social media and you'll be reminded that, no, there are people out there that that love your work and um, you just don't know who's reading it and who's liking it. And once in a while, you'll find out. Those out of the blue moments make it worthwhile. Make it totally worthwhile. And uh, yeah, so I, I think just just if we don't write it, no one will read it. So we got to write it. Yeah, I think uh, our, our pre-conversation before the interview began, I, I mentioned something like that. Yeah, because, you know, if it's not out there for people to read, they're not going to get it. Yeah, I have a wonderful novel up here, up in my head, right? That, that's not a novel until it gets to the page. <laughs> exactly. So finally, then we're going to do the shameless plugging. Huh. So uh, where can people find you and for which hat that you wear? Or is okay, it all the same place? Probably. I've tried to make it easy for people to find me. You can find me online at uh, Neil, N-E-I-L hyphen, Aiken, A-I-T-K-E-N.com. So Neil Aiken, Neil-Aiken.com. And from there, you will see information about me as a editor and a writing coach. You can find information about me as an author. You can find information about me as a 
as a translator of uh, contemporary Chinese poetry, you can find information about me as a game designer. I do a little bit of work in interactive fiction games. Mm -hmm. And uh, hopefully, and I haven't added it, but you will soon also be able to find information about me as a Twitch streamer playing uh, The Long Dark, which is a, a game set in the Canadian hinterlands and is a winter survival game. So I I stream that uh, most nights of the week uh, in the late evenings and uh, talk about poetry and creative writing while avoiding being killed by bears and wolves. I'm intrigued. I like the bear aspect of it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> do you have any uh, do you have any books you'd like to uh, plug? Sure. Uh, these are a little bit difficult to get a hold of here in Canada, but uh, uh, let me know if you do struggle with them. My first book is called The Lost Country of Sight, and the second book is called Babbage's Dream. That's B-A-B-B-A-G-E. Babbage like cabbage, right? Um, <laughs> Babbage's Dream. So the first book revolves around, uh, is a book of poetry that revolves around the themes of exile, home, and return. And ultimately, I would say I finished the book during the last year of my father's life when he was dying of ALS, of Lou Gehrig's disease. Right. And so the book ultimately becomes an elegy for my father and for others that I'd lost during the course of writing the book. The second book, Babbage's Dream, revolves around the history of computers, rethinks uh, programming terms as lyric poetry, and gives voices to artificially intelligent characters, uh, robots, and machines from literature and from real life and has them speaking back to us in monologues. So, oh, wow. <laughs> so that, that one's fun. Um, both of them were published by American publishers. So you probably can order them with a little bit of difficulty through, through, uh, through Amazon. If you live in Saskatchewan, well, if you live in Regina, let me know. And you could just drop by the library and pick up a, you know, purchase a copy from me directly when I'm holding office hours as writer in residence. Otherwise, there are co copies of the book available in the public library system. So you could put in an interlibrary loan and see if you could get a hold of the book that way. Or tell your local library to buy a copy and force them to buy a copy to add to their collection. Normally what I do with, um, with the people I interview is I, I ask them if they, if they would be willing to donate a copy of their book for my local library here where I live. And uh, a lot of them say, hey, that's a great idea. I like that idea. And they've been, you know, our, our, our library's mm -hmm. been growing a book at a time. But uh, no, that's... Oh, that's... I can I can, I can, can do that. I have a stockpile of books uh, that I brought up when I moved back to Canada. So um, I have a few extra copies. So if you want to do that, um, uh, I can, I can do that. with you later. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. This has been fantastic. Uh, it went longer than I expected. But you know what? I, I enjoyed every aspect of this. And I think all the listeners are going to benefit from what they've heard. So, Neil, thank you so much for doing this with me. And it's, uh, yeah, no, it was really great to, to, to hear from you and, and some of the things that you've said. So, thanks. Okay, my pleasure. And I, I wish you all the best and all your writers all the best. You have been listening to Between the Lines. In future episodes, I will not only be speaking with Canadian authors and writers, I will also be speaking with those 
from the other side of the writing industry. Editors, agents, and publishers in the hopes of getting a better understanding of how it all works together. If you like what you heard, hit the subscribe button to be notified of new episodes and content. Send all your comments, suggestions, or any questions you'd like to have a guest answer to me at randy.dplpodcast at gmail.com. Be sure to visit me at www.therandylacy.ca. While there, look for the Buy Me a Coffee button to help support the podcast. Thank you for your time and your ears. Tune in, be inspired, and write on. In business, you rarely hear the expression, for life. You make a purchase for a product, for a service, and, and there's, a, there's a time frame there. Well, that's not the case with Awaken 180 weight loss. Allow me to explain. You know, a year ago, I started with Awaken 180 weight loss and had incredible success losing weight. But you can lose all the weight in the world and not keep it off. And what good is it? That's why I have support for life from Awaken 180. Yeah. I mean, I go back for check-ins and make sure everything's going smoothly. But if I ever had a problem, the counselors are there to get me back on track. Why don't you do what I did and call for a consultation? 844-346-1800. 844-346-1800. Or go to awaken180weightloss.com.